1: I'm Emily Day, and this is an episode from the Lawfare Archives for November 13, 2021. This week, the Supreme Court heard arguments for a case involving FBI surveillance of a Muslim community in Southern California. The plaintiffs allege that the FBI surveilled them solely because of their religious identity. The central question in the case asks whether provision in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, displaces the state secret's privilege. To delve deeper into the act itself, I chose an episode from November 22, 2014, which features a panel discussion on FISA. to a blue skies approach. What if we didn't have the USA Patriot Act, FISA, or the FAA? How would we think about the future of foreign intelligence? And I can think of no better people uh, to be here today to discuss this uh, than our panelists. Uh, To my right is Jamil Jaffer, who is the Deputy Legal Director at the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, He is a graduate uh, of Williams, of Cambridge University, and of Harvard Law School. He's the Legal Director uh, uh, at the ACLU and the director of its Center for Democracy, which basically focuses on human rights, national security, free speech, privacy, and technology. Uh, he's litigated many cases, perhaps most relevant for today's discussion, uh, Clapper, which I understand we may get a decision in the middle of the panel. Uh, so, 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 so we have our phones primed in case that decision does come out. Uh, there will be an opportunity, yes, there will be an opportunity to comment on it. Uh, to my left, we have uh, Bob Litz, who has already been. Introduced today, but I will just again note uh, that since 2009, uh, Bob has served as general counsel uh, for the uh, Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Before that, he was a partner with Arnold and Porter. Uh, he's a former member of the advisory committee to the standing committee on uh, national security or law and national security here. Uh, he came from the Department of Justice from the criminal division where he worked as well. Uh, and finally to, uh, to my far left is Bill Banks, whom I think almost everybody in this room knows, he is one of the most important academics and scholars in the field of national security law. He's written two of the major textbooks, one uh, called National Security Law, uh, now in its fifth edition, and another called Counterterrorism Law, which is in its second edition. Uh, He has written extensively on a range of topics, from drones drones to targeted killing uh, to FISA, uh, Uh, And so what I'd like to do is, we're gonna do this panel slightly differently. We're actually not gonna have everybody give kind of pre-prepared remarks. Instead, we're gonna have a debate. Uh, We're gonna have an an in-depth debate and discussion, and I'm going to lead off uh, with Professor Banks. Uh, Bill, if you'll just start out, we're gonna start out with section 215. Can you just talk through a little bit about the history and contours uh, of the provision, not least because you wrote an article in 2007 uh, following USA Patriot Act revisions called the death
2: of FISA. Thanks, Laura. It's it's intimidating to be sitting next to uh, to Bob, Uh, but I won't let that stand in my way. (laughs) I was prepared to answer the first question, grouper. uh, 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 It really doesn't fit here. When FISA was enacted, there was no provision in the statute that committed Uh, the government authority to compel the production of records in any way. After the first World Trade Center and Oklahoma City bombings in the mid-1990s, Congress amended FISA in 98 to authorize the Fifth, the Special Court, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, to issue orders compelling the production of a narrow set of records from, quote, a common carrier, public accommodation facility, physical storage facility, or vehicle rental facility. We can understand where those categories came from. For use in, quote, an investigation to gather foreign intelligence information or an investigation concerning international terrorism, end quote. Upon a showing of, and this is important, specific and articulable facts giving reason to believe that the person to whom the records pertain is a foreign power, or agent of a foreign power. In 2001, a few weeks after 9-11, Section 215 of the Patriot Act substantially expanded that authority. First, it eliminated the types of entities, the limitation on the types of entities that could be compelled to produce the records, and authorized the FISC to issue orders compelling the production of quote, any tangible things, any tangible things including books, records, papers, documents, and other items. Second, to change the standard for issuance, eliminating the need for any particularized showing of individualized suspicion. The Act authorized the special court to issue orders whenever the government sought records for an authorized, quote, investigation to protect against international terrorism or clandestine intelligence activities. About the mid 2000s mid-decade, critics had complained about some of the open-endedness of Patriot Act standards. The 2005 Patriot Improvement and Reauthorization Act authorized the special court to issue orders only if the government provides quote a statement of fact showing that there are reasonable grounds to believe that the tangible objects sought are relevant to an authorized investigation to protect against international terrorism or clandestine intelligence activities. So one reading of the phrase in Section 215 relevant to an authorized investigation is that an order from the special court should specify with some particularity the records that must be turned over to the government, say the credit card records of a person suspected of participating in terrorist activities. In 2006, however, the special court adopted a broader understanding of the term relevant directed then and in a few dozen decisions between then and now that the U.S. telecommunications providers turn over to the government on an ongoing daily basis for a period of approximately 90 days, quote, all call detail records or telephony metadata created by the provider for communications between the U.S. and abroad, or wholly within the U.S., including local calls. Maybe I'll stop there. That's a bit of a history. All
1: right. Uh, Thanks very much, Bill. Uh, Jamil, reasonable grounds to believe relevant. Can we discuss the 215 programs in that context?
2: Sure. Well, so I won't um, belabor the details, because I think anyone who's been reading the newspapers knows the general outlines, at least. But... um, Uh, We learned um, uh, 18 months ago that the NSA is engaged in uh, bulk collection of call records under that particular provision. It involves the collection of, uh, depending on who you talk to, every or almost every or substantially all, uh, Call records relating to calls made on U.S. telephone networks. So that means when you pick up the phone, uh, essentially the government has a record of who you called, when you called them, how long the call was, uh, and the government has been collecting that kind of information since 2001 and since 2006 under Section 215. So that's the the set of uh, back end procedures under which the government accesses that that colossal database that it has been um, uh, creating through this surveillance program. And and that procedure envisions that the government will uh, tap at the NSA, will tap into that database um, um, using what they call seed numbers. Um, And when it... When it drops the seed number into the database, it looks uh, initially it was three three hops out, and now it's two hops out uh, from the seed. So it gets the call records not only of you know, the, the, the seed, uh, but people two or three degrees removed from uh, from that seed as well. Which can, you know, that's a, that's a number that gets big very quickly because if you assume, for example, that uh, every individual has, say, 40 uh, unique contacts, then you have 40 times 40 times 40, uh, and then again, depending on who you talk to, times. 40 uh, 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 people implicated in, in, in one of those queries. So that's you know that's the program, and I, I don't think it should be a surprise to anyone that civil libertarians had uh, concerns about it. Um, and I don't know if you want to get into the specific concerns right now, but that's you know that's my understanding of the program. I, I tried to deliver that fairly neutrally, but Bob may have some amendments. <laughs> All
1: right. Well we'll, t- well, we'll get to Fourth Amendment issues. For now, let's focus on the statutory questions. Bob.
2: So maybe we have no amendments right. Right. Do I get to talk about my first, second, and third amendments before we get to the fourth one? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think what what, what you know said is, is largely largely right as far as it went. I would say that um, there's a, there are a number of assumptions in what he said which are not necessarily correct, and I <laughs> I. I, I uh, Note, for example, just with respect to the number of of records that are collected, that there's an unspoken assumption there that every single uh, number that comes back is going to be put in for the next round of queries, and that's not the case. Uh, There's actually uh, some uh, review of those that takes place to make sure that, in fact, there's a reason to ask for the next round. So, in fact... The number of records collected is considerably less than the maximum that it will be. It's all, the other point to make is that Jamil is that kind of stinted on discussing the uh, restrictions that are put on the program. Um, this is not sort of wholesale sweeping in uh, of data that can be used for any purpose. Uh, there's a, a very Restrictive procedure approved by the court uh, in terms of the number of people who have access to the data, which is very limited. The number of people who are authorized to make queries, the circumstances under which the, the queries can be made, which is to say that this the seed number that, that uh, you mentioned has to be a number for which there is a reasonable, articulable suspicion to believe that it is associated in some way with international terrorism. Um, so it, I, I think there was. This is not a program that was operated without recognition of the fact that there might be privacy concerns involved and there were quite stringent limitations that were put on it to ensure that the the privacy concerns were respected. Can
1: you speak on that relationship to Pen Register and Trap and Trace just to clarify the distinction between the two under the statute?
2: Well, the the. There, there is a separate provision in FISA that authorizes the installation of pen registers or trap and trace devices. Um, for a variety of reasons, that authority was not available for this program. It was used as the basis for a sort of analogous uh, program that was operated for a few years involving internet metadata. That program was was run under very similar terms. It was terminated in 2011.
1: Okay. You really want to
2: respond to those uh, Yeah, so a few things. Um is focused um, mainly on the back-end restrictions. And I, I don't think that the back-end restrictions are as strong as Bob describes them. But the more important thing is that the back-end disri- uh, restrictions are back-end restrictions. There is no restriction on the government's collection of this information in the first place. And the underlying assumption here is that the collection of the information in the first place doesn't implicate the Fourth Amendment. It doesn't implicate Americans' privacy rights. Uh, that's the sort of the foundational assumption uh, of this of this program. And that's something that I think that you should You should think twice about. Um, If you accept that proposition, that the government can collect all of this information and then answer to the Fourth Amendment only at the time it runs a query, um, then uh, what what you are accepting is the government's authority to to build these massive databases, not just of call records, but, you know, as Bob mentioned, the NSA was doing this with Internet metadata as well, you know, the websites you visit, essentially, um, or email addresses you collect, that's all in the government's view metadata, uh, or location Information is also in the government's view of metadata, or arguably bank records, or relationships between bank bank records, or uh, even medical records. You know, um, uh, there's no reason why the same theory couldn't be applied to all of those kinds of records, um, and the governments the, the governments. Uh, 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 analysis here is an analysis that would allow the, the the NSA to collect all of that information and keep it in these, uh, what it describes as essentially lock boxes uh, an answer to the Constitution only at the time the NSA decides to access, or some other agency decides to access, to access that database. And that's a lot of information to have in government hands, even if you have a lot of confidence that the rules that are in place right now uh, are being enforced, as they should be enforced, and so that the people who are in charge of those rules uh, are well-motivated and they're operating in good good faith, uh, you know, one day the rules may change or one day the people in charge may change. Uh, and you have to build a system that accounts for not just the possibility but the certainty that at one point uh, the system will change in those respects. And I don't think that a program like this, which gives the government access to essentially everything, um, is a program that uh, has been built with those kinds of concerns in mind. So you know, just, you know, just, I, I do think that at this stage it's probably worth mentioning that we're not talking about credit card rent. Here. We're not talking about medical records. We're talking about a category of data which, under controlling Supreme Court precedent, there there is no reasonable expectation of privacy, and these are business records of a telephone company. These are not your personal records. These are the records the company maintains for its own purposes. That's not to say that there isn't a privacy implication involved here, and that's why the program was set up the way it was and was not just indiscriminate. And you know, a different program involving different records would pres- would present different considerations. But we are talking about records for which there's pretty clear, pretty clear Supreme Court case that says there's no Fourth Amendment protected interest involved in these. Cases. So, Bob, just a point
1: of clarification for the statutory language and the interpretation of reasonable grounds to believe that they are relevant. Uh, is there anything in that logic that wouldn't allow it to be applied to, for instance, financial records? If the argument is that all telephony metadata is relevant uh, for authorized investigations, uh, then is there anything that would prevent that in a statutory reading of being applied to other areas? So,
2: I mean, it's useful to step back here and and just uh, understand why this program came into being. Um, It it came into being as a result of a very specific situation that was highlighted in the report of the 9-11 Commission. Uh, And that was the fact that that one of the 9-11 terrorists was living in San Diego and was communicating with an Al-Qaeda safe house in Yemen. And because of the way, and, and NSA was collecting on that safe house in Yemen. And they saw these phone calls, but because of technical limitations in the way that collection was accomplished, they had no way to know that those calls were coming from the United States. Um, So, I mean, there were obviously a number of points of failure that led up to 9-11, but this was one that was identified. And so the purpose of this particular program was to try to fill that gap. And it was based on that and based on the restrictions in the program that the FISA court found that the metadata here was relevant to an authorized investigation. not, that does not in any way mean that the same conclusion would apply to different records in a different program, uh, and I would, not purport, I would not purport to advocate that unless there's a particular showing that applies to the, to the other records in another program. I don't think it follows logically at all.
1: So Bill, can I bring you in on this, Smith versus Maryland, right, Bob makes a very strong point that under third party doctrine none of these records are privileged or, or somehow
2: subject to special protections.
1: Uh, could you talk a little bit about the Fourth Amendment issues? State here?
2: Well, sure. The, the doctrine that Smith and Miller, two cases from the 1970s, that what you give up voluntarily to uh, a third party, uh, your bank, your telephone company, uh, your, your hotel, uh, you have no reasonable expectation that they won't, in turn, uh, give that information to the government. So it doesn't trigger Fourth Amendment protections at all. Uh, these were, uh, these, of course, pre internet decisions, and um, they stand in the Supreme Court of the United States. There have been some important decisions in the court in the last few years calling into question the third-party doctrine. Uh, Many of you remember uh, uh, Jones uh, and the the GPS case, and then just this year, Riley and and the uh, cell phone uh, search case, Justice Sotomayor. Uh, and others in concurrence have uh, discussed the, uh, the changing nature of privacy in light of digital uh, communications. And in particular, there's some language uh, from, uh, from Justice uh, Sotomayor in the Riley case. Uh, that I think is, is somewhat illuminating. She said in a, in a uh, piece of her opinion there, cell phones as a category implicate privacy concerns far beyond those implicated by the search of a cigarette pack, a wallet, or a purse. Cell phones differ in a quantitative and qualitative sense from other objects that might be kept on an arrestee's person, as was the case of a, subsequent, of a search subsequent to uh, arrest. The term cell phone is itself misleading in shorthand, many of the devices are in effect mini computers that also happen to have the capacity to be used as a telephone. They could just as easily be called cameras, video players, Rolodexes, calendars, tape recorders, libraries, diaries, albums, televisions, maps, or newspapers. The cell phone search would typically expose to the government far more than the most exhaustive search of a house. The phone not only contains in digital form many sensitive records previously found in the home, it also contains a broad array of private information never found in a home in any form unless the phone is. So there's an indication there that at least some members of the court are thinking differently about the nature of the environment in which these questions arise.
1: Okay, so we have first Maryland, where Patricia McDonough is robbed, um, right, and, a, and sees a 1975 Monte Carlo in Baltimore, and then that person calls her at home, drives by out the front, she sees the same car, she calls the police, the police find out, they see the Monte Carlo in her neighborhood, they go and they go to a telephone company, and they say, can we put a tap on the phone to figure out where it's coming from, where it's going to, and the phone company doesn't even have those capabilities at that point. They put the wiretap on, or, or the, the PRTT on the unregistered trap on trace. They figure out. That he's calling her, they go to his house with a warrant, and they sign the telephone book with her name. So, your contention is that that privacy interest is different than the privacy interest at stake in the, for instance, it's left the telephony metadata program. Um, but you're pointing to DICTA, right, um, in, in a case uh, in this regard. Uh, what other kind of judicial, at least, doctrine um, or judicial case law can you point to to support the contention that this third party data ought not to be considered beyond the reach of the Fourth Amendment?
2: In the Supreme Court, I don't think, think we have much to uh, draw. There's a fair amount of law in lower courts and other settings ra- raising privacy concerns, particularly in the area of technology, cell, site, cell phone site location, for example, uh, s- searches, the incident to arrest, and some others. Yeah, you know, I think I, I disagree uh, a little bit about that. I mean, I think that, so first, the, the way that this debate has often been characterized is as a debate about whether Smith versus Merlin should be overruled or should be limited in some way. And I, you know, I think that that sort of builds in um, the conclusion. But if, you, if you present the debate in that way, then it's obvious only the Supreme Court has the authority to, to make the decision that we want the Supreme Court to make, but. Um, I think that the better way to characterize the question that's before the courts right now is not whether to limit Smith versus Maryland or whether to overrule Smith versus Maryland, but rather whether to extend Smith versus Maryland to a completely different set of facts. As Laura said, Smith versus Maryland involved targeted surveillance of a single criminal suspect over a period of I think it was three days. Uh, it did not involve anything remotely resembling the program that um, uh, that we now know to to exist. Uh, the program we know to exist now is not focused on specific, at the collection stage, it's not focused on specific uh, uh, criminal suspects. Uh, It's not uh, limited to a single person. It's hundreds of millions of people. It's not limited to three days. Uh, It's been in place for a decade already. And to say that Smith versus Maryland essentially decided that the Fourth Amendment has nothing to say about a program like this, I think is to misunderstand how Supreme Court precedent actually works. Um, And, and, you know, it... it, uh, uh, I think it's notable that um, one federal district court, who considered this issue after the program was disclosed, uh, went, you know, went went that way, our way, uh, on that particular issue. Uh, and if you look at, for example, the P. Club report, the Privacy and Civil Liberties and Oversight uh, uh, Oversight Board report, on section 215, there's a suggestion in there that there's a constitutional, uh, there may be constitutional issues with this kind of collection as well. Um, and then as to uh, as to you know the question of whether there's support, in the Supreme Court's precedent, I mean, I take the point that you know there is, um, there has been this um, uh, a series of cases in which I think Jones is the most obvious, in which uh, various judges have alluded to the possibility that. At some point in the future, the third-party records doctrine would have to be might might have to be reconsidered. Uh, but the truth is that the third-party records doctrine, this doctrine um, um, uh, that bill was referring to, that, that, that essentially says uh, if you entrust your information to a third party, you surrender any of your privacy interests in that information. It's never actually operated as a bright-line rule. And if you look at, uh, I want to get I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but if you look at a case like Ferguson, it was a Supreme Court case from about a decade ago, which involved. Um, uh, records entrusted to a hospital, medical records, um, and the medical records, uh, the, the hospital's own records relating to its patients. The Supreme Court said that patients had uh, a right of privacy protected by the Fourth Amendment in those records, notwithstanding the fact that they had entrusted that information to a third party. And even the government, uh, in its briefs, concedes that uh, the third-party records doctrine doesn't operate like an on-off switch. Uh, it concedes that when you make a phone call, for example, and you entrust the content uh, that your call uh, to um, to your telecom, uh, to your telecommunications provider, um, you don't lose your your privacy interest in that information. And if you have a uh, if you have a publishing agreement with a, uh, uh, you publish a book uh, anonymously or pseudonym pseudonymously, uh, you you uh, you you uh, under somebody else's name, uh, uh, you you um, you, um, uh, you don't thereby lose your privacy interest in that piece of information. So I don't think it's ever been as simple as you know, entrust your information to a third party, and therefore, no privacy. Because it's always been more complicated than that. I don't think we need to have sort of a wholesale revolution in Fourth Amendment law in order for the Supreme Court, or any lower court, uh, to say that in this particular factual context, the fact that you entrusted information uh, to at and or T-Mobile, or whoever it was, uh, doesn't on its own mean that you lose your privacy in the Senate. So, so um, Jamil is, is a is a first-rate lawyer. And understands that the way you frame the question frequently dictates um, the answer. Um, I want to go back uh, and start from the beginning with Smith because if there is one thing that Smith held, it is that the the defendant in that case did not have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the numbers he dialed and, and so on and so forth. And that is what Smith held. And while it's true that the Smith case was only three days, no, no court since then ever suggested that the authority to conduct pen registers without a, a probable cause warrant was limited by the number of days. So what? So Jamil's next point is, well, but in this case you're doing it for lots of people, not just one person. Uh, that's really saying, well, you know, zero, zero plus zero is still zero. Um, if, if you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in your dialed telephone numbers, then you can't have a reasonable expectation of privacy because other people's dialed telephone numbers are being corrected. And that's, that's fairly established in traditional constitutional law. Um, I don't think anybody uh, would deny the fact that we're going to have to reevaluate constitutional doctrines as, as technology changes. I, mean, I think that that's very basic. I think that this is a case which fits squarely within sort of the core of the established constitutional doctrines, because we're talking about a kind of information that the Supreme Court and lower courts have repeatedly held is not protected by the Fourth Amendment. If we're talking about medical records, if we're talking about the Contents of a cell phone, uh, and 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 uh, you know that was the language that uh, that uh, Bill Banks read there. Talked about the actual cell phone itself, what's on the cell phone, not the data that the telephone company holds about the cell phone. We can address other issues as they can, as they come up. This is not the case. There is no way that I think that you can decide this case without fundamentally undercutting established law and creating lots of chaos and confusion for law enforcement. And 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 other agencies that have relied on that established law for a long time.
1: Uh, Quick response?
2: Sure, yeah. Well, if if Bob's point is that the NSA should lose in the Supreme Court and not in the lower courts, then I think we can find common ground. But um, (laughs) more seriously, the, the, the... you know this this question of the, 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 the zero plus zero uh, is zero logic you know at one level is obviously unimpeachable right but um the, the problem with it is is the, the the privacy interests don't operate in that way um, when the government collects information about millions of people the the, the implications for the for the, um, the the privacy of any particular individual are greater that's because when the government knows not only who you call Ball, but who the people you call call, the government knows more about you. And so it's not, uh, you know, it's not simply that, uh, you know, when somebody walks into court and says I'm complaining about this call records program, it's true that principally they're complaining about the surveillance of their own communications, but the surveillance of their own communications is made more intrusive by the fact that the government is collecting information about everybody else. Uh, And the other point I want to just quickly make is, um, uh, 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 Bob, I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm mischaracterizing your point, but uh, I think that what you said was uh, that there's no precedent for this idea that um, um, uh, 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 now I'm paraphrasing that you collect a little information that's unprotected by the Constitution uh, but when you uh, and it's unprotected but when you collect a lot uh, it suddenly becomes protected out uh, of the same kind of information I, I don't I don't think that's right I think that in Jones five justices um, uh, agreed that collecting more location information over a longer period of time about a single person um, implicated the Fourth Amendment in a way that short. Term surveillance didn't. And more importantly, I think, um, uh, by your logic that Smith should control this. Call records case, um, Jones should have been controlled by the cases in which the Supreme Court previously held um, that short-term location tracking didn't uh, didn't implicate the Constitution. But the Supreme Court didn't think that the fact that they had previously held that police officers could follow specific people around for short periods of time, uh, the Supreme Court didn't feel like those cases dictated the result in Jones. None of the nine justices felt that way. Uh, so I think that that you know I think that Jones has the same relationship. Uh, to the previous uh, location tracking cases as the call records program cases have to the Jones case. i uh, uh, sorry, to Smith versus Maryland. Um, and I think that, you know, ultimately, uh, I mean, I think we both agree that how you frame the question matters. What's going to matter in the Supreme Court is the same thing that what that matters in the lower courts. It matters uh, whether the courts come to this thinking that this is a case about uh, uh, whether Smith versus Maryland should be limited uh, or whether Smith versus Maryland should be extended. And I, you know, ultimately um, you have to decide for yourself whether you think that the Smith case, uh, which again involved targeted surveillance directed at a single person over three days, uh, whether in that case the Supreme Court was. Really thinking that it was deciding the kind of issue that's presented today. So, so, General, I want to take a little risk here and ask you a question. Um, I, I want to explore the argument that you made that says that um, the reason there's a greater expectation of privacy. One of the reasons why you say there's a greater expectation of privacy here is that um, if you know not only who I call, but you know who that person calls, you know more about me. So, Kate Martin sitting at the front table here, I'm going to hypothesize that you, you've you called Kate at some point in the past. Yes, um, right. um, is, 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 sure. it, is it your position that you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in a pen register trap and trace phone? put on Kate I think, that's, uh, I think that that's a t- a totally different question. I mean, I, I think that it's, uh, it's a good question to ask. Uh, okay. No, so I think it's a good question to ask in what circumstances do individuals retain um, a right of privacy and information entrusted to a third party or made public, right? And the Jones case itself raises that question because that was all information that individuals put in some sense into the public sphere. And I think it raises a whole slew of difficult questions about where to draw lines. Uh, but the fact that it raises these difficult questions about where to draw lines doesn't mean we should, uh, We need to then draw the line in a place where the government collects everything. And there's no. There's no right of privacy left. I mean, I think there's a hard line drawing exercise. I don't deny that.
1: So uh, just a point of clarification. It's not just numbers called and numbers that call you, but also trunk yeah. identifier information, which is which cell phone tower picks up your call at any point in time. Is that no. that was in the order? not?
2: It's not cell tower information. Trunk. Trunk, 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 identifier. trunk. identifier is much, much, much broader than cell tower. It's uh, a cell. Power. What does it precisely? It's, like, right. it, 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 it's like the. the, the. <laughs> I'm not technical on this, so it, but it's like the big cable that's carrying the call. It's not, it, it's not, it's not any, it's not even as precise as cell tower, which is only margin, which is not very precise. We're right around the area? Area? Yeah.
1: Okay. So Fourth Amendment issues will be addressed by the courts in Clayman um, and in Clapper, which uh, I guess we we're watching our friends in case Clapper does come down during the panel. Where? There's some reason to believe that for that. Right. It's hope. It's faith. Right. You've um, <laughs> got you to have a little bit. Of That's Um, why. So so, so let's set the Fourth Amendment issues aside for a moment because there are other branches of government involved here, uh, one being the executive, that despite uh, the position, (laughs) 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 Um, uh, the the executive branch actually came out, the president said in January, okay, we're going to get rid of this program. So if it is constitutional and statutorily authorized by Congress, and if Congress was, as it appears to have been, regularly appraised of the program, uh, why the change in January? And what's happened in the interim? I think in October on the 17th, uh, you issued an interim report on that. Bob, can you talk a little bit about uh, PDB 28 and the announcement in January about the changes to 215?
2: So we're actually, we're actually conflating a couple of different issues here. Um, so, and since we're talking about 215 now, let me, we'll do let, yeah, let, let me talk about, about 215. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's – it, It's not hard to conceive of the fact that just because something is authorized by law and constitutional, we decide we don't want to do it. Um, I think the president made the determination that he would rather have this program run in a different fashion. Um, It's basically uh, he imposed certain restrictions on it um, as a matter of executive discretion, one being that instead of three hops, we would only go out two hops. Number two is that um, determinations of reasonable, articulable That's what you need to start that querying process, that those would be made by the FISA Court. And the third thing the President said is he wants legislation to authorize a replacement for the program. Um, that legislation is, is moving through Congress. And I'm hopeful that we'll pass Congress in the lame duck session and we won't have to start all over again in a new Congress. Um, but that's where we are. Okay. Okay. All right.
1: So, uh, Bill, can you lay out the new legislation, the USA Freedom Act, exactly what the contrary I mean So there's lots of legislation. Let me be clear. That seems sure. to be kind of sure. a
2: front runner right now. And referring to Bob on to describe some of the uh, terms of art here. Uh, the, the, the bill, the Freedom Act, Would in effect ban bulk collection by requiring that Pfizer record applications be based on what the bill calls specific selector term. Can you say a word about what that is? Sure. Um, It's a complicated uh, definition, um, and it actually has uh, several different components. Um, The the concept, the the definition, which I'm fumbling for right now, in general, a specific selection term, he says, it is, it is a term that specifically identifies a person, account, address, or personal device, or another specific identifier that is used by the government to narrowly limit the scope of tangible things sought, to the greatest extent reasonably practicable, consistent with the purpose for seeking the tangible things. and does not a term, include a term that does not narrowly limit the scope and it specifically says it does not include a term based on a geographic region, zip code, area code, or something like that. If I can just elaborate on this for one second, it's important to remember that, that Section 215 and, and this specific selection term definition are not be, are not limited to the bulk telephony metadata program. This is a restriction that applies to any use of Section 215 to obtain records of other tangible things. And the the overall concept of this bill, I, I think I can explain getting away from the, the definitions a little bit, is that there may be circumstances in which the government uh, needs to doesn't have the kind of specificity that is that is called for and required for the bulk program, which is to or the, the telephony metadata program, which is a specific person or telephone number. The example that that, that you know that um, a, if you have information that a, that a terrorist is staying in a hotel on a certain date, but you don't know the terrorist's name, So what the bill provides in that case is you can go to the hotel and you can say give us all the records for this date, But it also provides that once you figure out who the terrorist is, you have to get rid of the rest of the records. So it kind of accomplishes a balance between operational necessity and privacy protectiveness. In the context of telephone metadata, that's not authorized. You have to have a a term that is a telephone number or a person's name or something like that, a specific selection term. Just I'll introduce a couple of other aspects. Uh, so, in effect, the, the, the hotel example is a good one because it, it sort of reverts back to a minimization method for accounting for mistakes or wrestling with the data that's, that's collected. So here there's an assumption you may need to go uh, to the entire hotel registry to get an unnamed terrorist, but then you've got to minimize what you've collected. The bill would also require... Uh, An application for call records to to state that there are reasonable grounds to believe that the records are relevant to an investigation and that there's a reasonable articulable suspicion that a specific selector term is associated with with a foreign power agency or foreign power. the bill would place some limitations on what a call detail record could include. We've talked about some of those, and it makes it easier uh, for someone to challenge or set aside non-disclosure orders that are uh, attached to that law. Uh, includes some protections for those ordered to produce records, immunizes them from liability, requires the government to compensate them for reasonable expenses incurred while complying with such an order. And of course, one of the important things the sunset for the program itself is pushed out from spring of 2015
1: to the end of 2017.
2: And so it would align with the Senate. align with the so,
1: so, Bill, you've written um, that you, you wrote a piece that was a requiem for FISA and a plea for our government to restore. You wrote the constitutional values that FISA wisely straddled. Does the constitutional advocate go far enough in this direction for you?
2: Well, this is an interesting provision, I know if Bates was here this morning. I, I doubt that he's not still in the room. He's probably going to call something on his calendar this afternoon. Uh, there, was a, uh, there are a number of wrestled with the possibility of uh, introducing an adversary of some kind uh, to oppose the government in the FISA cases. As you know, FISA is a one, one-sided uh, operation. It's the government involved with the government inside a secret court where no one else is present. That system has been around for a long time. It's worked very well, particularly with respect to individualized targeting surveillance decisions. The model for a special advocate has been debated in several different forms, from the court's current discretion to appoint an amicus, which it's always had but never done, to something that's more in the nature of a public advocate uh, who would be always available from outside, cleared for the purpose of such a case, uh, coming uh, from civil liberties community in some way, uh, or some kind of an in-between position. The Senate bill that, uh, as Bob indicated, may have a good chance of enactment or passage this, uh, this next month or so, uh, does not leave the appointment of such a special advocate solely up to the special court and would in the the statute then require consultation with the PCLOB, the present Civil Liberties Oversight Board, to appoint at least five people to serve as special advocates, and the bill says the court shall designate a special advocate in any case involving, quote, a novel or significant interpretation of the law, or in any other instance where the FISC deems it appropriate. It's certainly broader than the amicus role that historically has been available, broader than an amicus that was in an earlier version of, a, of House uh, legislation. Uh, but the bill goes on to say that the FISC judge could decide that such an advocate is not necessary, and that issue a written finding to that effect, and that would end the matter. So it's a, it's a presumption, but it's rebuttable by the fisc itself. Uh, the advocate uh, is charged with supporting legal interpretations that advance individual privacy and civil liberties. The advocate would have access to all relevant legal precedent and other materials in the court, including classified information, once the, the advocates were cleared. As we many of us know, uh, late this summer, in a, in a fairly unusual Uh, Matter, Judge Bates actually uh, issued a letter uh, from inside the judiciary uh, worrying about the presence of such an advocate. He argued that the presence of the advocate in this kind of setting would make the government less willing to share information uh, with the advocate than with the court. Uh, And and, uh, there was a good deal of of discussion in the blogs and elsewhere about Judge Bates' uh, letter. Uh, I think, and I think a number of others, think that that concern is overblown. The the council are appointed to address legal questions, not to get involved in the facts of the application that gave rise to the uh, proceeding. Uh, they would be appointed after the proceedings have already begun, of course, so if there's something, of course, that's very time sensitive, there's emergency authority for the government to go uh, and not pay any attention to this procedure whatsoever, uh, the advocate wouldn't stand in its, in its way in those circumstances. Congress provided in 215 and 702 for some adversarial process anyway because those who receive the orders or the directives have a statutory opportunity to resist. So this is uh, simply an amplification of that opportunity. Note that apparently no party has so far availed herself of the opportunity to contest either a 215 order or a 702 directive in the special court or the court of review uh, with cleared counsel. Uh, some say, and uh, certainly... Uh John Carlin, who was here this morning, might have said, we we at the National Security Division and Justice already perform that role. We are neutral. We're arbiters. We're uh, working for the government, certainly, but we're supposed to take a look at all the law work that goes on associated with these applications, and that's certainly true. The, the process is lawyered to the hilt. Uh, but there, there is an argument, I think, that's one to uh, credit that even those lawyers who are the best and the brightest uh, may be Subject to agency capture, uh, as uh, as the theory goes, so that the. Um The the Senate bill, I think, would offer an opportunity for outside voice uh, and to add, I think, some uh, added legitimacy to the process that's already thought to be quite strong.
1: So you agree with the bill uh, in that respect? I do. And, uh, Bob, the administration, although it hasn't issued a formal statement, the Attorney General did write a letter saying, and the DNI, sorry, of course, and the DNI wrote a letter supporting this legislation. So uh, what's your position on the legislation currently before Congress?
2: um, so it's yeah. Well,
1: we're done. we
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. I mean, I
2: mean, I, let, let me elaborate on this a little bit more. I'm exactly. not a to elaborate as well. But. Um, but, but I think Jamil and I are basically going to be saying the same thing from different directions. This is, this is not a perfect bill. Right? Um, but it actually is an example of, of people getting together. There were, there were a lot of hours spent. Uh, uh, shuttling proposals back and forth, um, tinkering with language. I think there was some, there was some uh, very creative work done uh, by people on the uh, privacy and civil liberties side to, to try to accommodate the concerns and uh, and the operational needs that we have. I think we've done a lot to try to accommodate the privacy and civil liberties preser- concerns. I'm sure DeNeal would have written a, a different bill had he been drafting it. I would have written a, a different bill had I been drafting it. But I think this is something that there is a sufficiently broad coalition Behind that, it, it, it's worth getting it passed, uh, and not having to uh, to throw things open and, and uh, have people start fighting about it again.
1: And notably, something has to be passed, right? Because two fifteen 15 is our deadline. Yeah, June 215. Exactly.
2: Right. Yeah. I, you know, I, Bob's Right. I would have said the same thing from the from the other direction. You know, and, and actually, the, the bill that Bob described when he was describing the bill is a bill that I would like very much. Uh, my concern is the the. Possibility of some distance between Bob's description of the bill and how the the bill will actually operate in in practice. And the example that Bob used of the the 215 order directed at a hotel for a limited period of time uh, under the circumstances he described, I don't think you'd find a lot of disagreement that the government should have the authority to do that, to make that kind of request. The concern is that um, the language of the bill right now, this is the specific selection term language, which is, you know, sort of very. uh, probably contested um uh, that that language. Not, it's not clear uh, what the limits um, what limits that language would actually place on the government's uh, ability to to, um, to conduct what some people are calling bulky surveillance um, uh, under section 215. And so it's one thing to direct that kind of request at a hotel. It's another thing to say that Verizon is our specific selection term, or um, uh, you, you know Western Union is our specific selection term, um, and we want you know everything from Western Union over you know this. Long period of time or indefinitely i 'm not suggesting that that 's what Bob intends to do with this provision i 'm just saying that that 's the concern one of the concerns that has been raised about the language all of that said. The ACLU supports the bill. I think, I think that it's, you know, it would be a step in the right direction. It addresses only one of the government surveillance authorities, and uh, uh, despite all of the attention that Section 215 has quite deservedly got, uh, Section 215 is just a little piece of the government surveillance authority. I know we're going to be talking about other pieces of it in a minute. Um, I did want to, if I can have one more minute, just, just to can I just that the statute does specifically prevent the, the, the name of a collect- of a communication provider from using the specific selection that, That's right, but there are analogous you know, it's very easy to come up with you know, Western Union for example or I don't know, Citibank or whatever, you know, things that are analogous that the bill doesn't specifically prevent. And again, you know, a, a lot is going to matter in how the bill is implemented right. uh, and despite those concerns we're supporting it.
1: Okay, so the bill addresses 215, it also addresses uh, Section 702 and of course NSLs. Um, and uh, we're going to turn first to 702, this point, uh, Bob, can you please explain uh, the arguments behind uh, the FISA Amendments Act uh, and why that was put into place in the first place?
2: Yeah, and um, uh, if David Chris had been here, he would have done this better than I. Um, but um, essentially, when FISA was originally passed, uh, it was not meant to govern the collection of uh, foreign intelligence overseas uh, and they did this by, uh, it, they did this by uh, how they defined electronic surveillance in the statute. Um, I, I'm not going to go into the, the technical details of what the definitions were, but they're fairly complicated. But the bottom line is that um, by 2001, two things had happened. First, um, as a result of technological changes in the way communication occurred. The line that had been drawn in 1978 that was supposed to differentiate between the domestic collection and foreign collection had broken down so that a lot of the kinds of foreign collection that were supposed to be exempted from FISA were falling under FISA and requiring the government to go to the court and get individual FISA orders. And the second thing that happened was 9-11, which suddenly uh, increased dramatically the volume of foreign intelligence collection that we were going to be doing. So the... Uh, essentially uh, first the Protect America Act and then the the FISA Amendments Act, um, were meant to, um, uh, on the one hand, eliminate the need to go to the FISA court for individual probable cause orders if we're targeting a foreign terrorist located in uh, Yemen just because he happens to be using a U.S.-based communications provider, but on the other hand, to provide some degree of judicial supervision and authorization and oversight And parenthetically, it also extended greater protections to U.S. persons who were outside of the United States, who previously had been outside of FISA and now were brought under the sort of more rigid uh, probable cause. So in a nutshell, what it does is it allows the Attorney General and the Director of National Intelligence to uh, submit a certification to the FISA court um, that they want to collect foreign intelligence information uh, of a particular type um, and to submit targeting and minimization procedures. Um, The targeting procedures are essentially intended to ensure that we're only targeting non-U.S. persons outside of the United States. Those are the only persons who can targeted under Section 702 and also we're not allowed to use that as a pretext for actually targeting an American. Um, those are those are all prohibitions written into the statute. And the minimization procedures uh, arise from the fact that Congress recognized that when you're doing this kind of collection, you're going to be incidentally collecting communications of Americans. Um, there may be, if, if you're targeting a foreign person, um, her brother-in-law may live in the United States, uh, and you may intercept those communications. And so the statute required that the, um, that the government established procedures to minimize the retention, the acquisition, retention, and dissemination of communications by U.S. persons, and finally, the court has to determine that the whole shebang put together uh, complies with to the Fourth Amendment.
1: So, could you comment a bit, Jamil, on what we've found out since June of 2013 about uh, Prism and upstream collection, at least as in the media?
2: Yeah. <laughs> Um, sure. <laughs> Although, let me let me just start by saying that he, he, you know Bob, Bob started his um, his explanations both of the call records program and of uh, section 702 by identifying a problem, uh, and then presenting the call records program and session at 702 as solutions to that problem or answers to that problem. And, uh, you know, for the most part I actually agree that the things that Bob is identifying as problems were problems. Um, the, the concern is that the purported solutions don't have a close relationship to the problems. Um, and in fact, the, the, the solutions, uh, r- 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 solutions involve intrusions, privacy intrusions, uh, on a scale far beyond what what is necessary to actually address the problems of law that's identified. With the call records program, I think we've now seen the President himself concede that um, uh, or announce, I don't know if concede is the right word, announce that uh, the, the, um, the, the Intelligence value of the call records program is value that could be obtained through a much a much more uh, targeted program. And with section 702, I think the same thing is true. That that uh, it's obviously true that the government, in some uh, instances, needs access to uh, international, foreign, to foreign communications, and even international communications, meaning one end domestic, one end abroad. Um, it's obviously true that the government needs access to those kinds of communications in some circumstances. Um, uh, but this is a this is a, a bill that essentially is a law uh, that gives the government uh, almost unfettered access to Americans' international communications. And the underlying theory of this uh, of this law is that Americans lose their privacy rights uh, by talking to foreigners abroad. If you're calling somebody outside the United States, the government's theory, uh, and they say this expressly in their in their briefs, uh, the government's theory is uh, those communications uh, are protected by the Fourth Amendment. Now that said, they also need make the argument that this program is reasonable under the this, this statute is reasonable under the fourth amendment. Um, but as to your you know your specific question, Laura, I mean I think that my understanding um,
1: actually sorry before you before you answer that under Verdugo Urquid is you know non-US persons who have a substantial connection to the United States outside the U.S. do not have a Fourth Amendment right.
2: Well that I, I'm not disagreeing with um, uh, that character I'm not I'm not disagreeing with that characterization of Verdugo uh, but um, the, the the difference here is that you're not talking just about the rights of people outside the United States you're, or foreigners outside the United States. You're talking about the rights of people who are inside the United States. U.S. citizens and U.S. persons inside the United States. Because... We are the ones who are making these phone calls, right? We're talking about phone calls that have one person who, in the government's view, doesn't have one person who's outside the United States and one person inside, and so it creates a situation where, um, in my view, the government is bootstrapping its way into access to Americans' international communications by relying on the theory that the people outside, the people on the other end of the phone, don't have Fourth Amendment rights. Uh, That all that's a little bit abstract, and you asked me a more specific question. I don't know if you want me to answer that. Okay, Uh, it may be more better to. Directed at Bob. I don't know if this is a question at all. Uh, I'm serious. The question about how uh, certain you know, in prison, I think that Bob is better able to answer that than I am. Um, so um, basically, there are two kinds of collection that take place under Section 702. Um, the first is collection from communication service providers. Um, your internet service provider, the, the communications that they, of you that they store. And the second is what's called upstream, which is collection across, of, of communications going across internet backbones. Um, the, the, the bulk of the collection is, is of the first kind. Um, but those are basically the two kinds of communications. are the two kinds of collections.
0: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.
1: context in this particular context which is not used um, is my understanding in prison but is used potentially in upstream collection uh bill you actually wrote an article uh, very close to this uh, predicting this exact circumstance of programmatic surveillance and chise of needles and haystacks when you when you predicted that actually this is precisely how this language would be used in practice can you comment a little bit about that since the article predated these releases by years in this case
2: Cooper. I think by now we know uh, the government uh, characterizes four different uh, settings in which U.S. person uh, communication could be captured in uh, in the two programs together, in the upstream and the uh, PRISM program. There's the, uh, the incidental. Collection. The example that Bob gave a moment ago about the, the the brother-in-law of the foreign person having a telephone communication in the United States. There's the example that you just mentioned, Laura. The who, from, or about. That's where there's a communication involving others that's picked up under the terms of uh, of the upstream program. But somewhere in the communication, there's reference about. Uh, a U.S. person. There's also a category, uh, what's the acronym, MPF, um, multi train MCT. 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 Uh, it's, at least it's three letters, right? That's the term of the day. And that's another one where in a, in a stream of uh, transactions, the U.S. person is somehow referenced in the str- in the. Uh, Pack, package of, of messages that's being collected, and then finally, there's inadvertent. As distinct from incidental, inadvertent is a simple mistake. Uh, so it was it, it was anticipated, I think, by many of us when this program was uh, enacted in the. FISA Amendments Act that over collection uh, and burden collection would occur of United States persons. And the question was how to account for it. The, the the premise of the law was that it would be accounted for in minimization in the ways that Bob has described and that we've known about you know, through FISA for now more than 30 years. Minimization is in, in the FISA Amendments Act, it's statutory. Uh, Authority and the terms for its uh, description are precisely the same as those that were used in 1978 to describe minimization uh, for individual targeted orders.
1: Right, and Judge Bates had pushed back on to the to of the minimization procedures. That's with the declassified opinions from October of 2011.
2: Yeah, those of us who read way down in the weeds
1: show that that actually just pushed back on that point, and then was satisfied subsequently yes. that those requirements are being met for constitutionally sufficient purposes under the Fourth Amendment. You have
2: to be a real junkie to read all that stuff. (laughs) So I do do want to um, actually correct a couple of things in in Bill's description of the, the, uh, what we call, the vows collection. Um, The first is uh, that the Uh, The only thing that can be used as a basis for an about collection is the same kind of selector that is used for the actual collection itself. And I understand that for people who don't... uh, Sentence. So, so let me back up a little bit. And it has nothing to do with groupers either. Um, but just, just to say that the way collection under 702 is accomplished is by a selector, which is a phone number or an email address or something like that. Uh, and, and so for, you know, we are looking for that phone number or email address. Uh, it's, it's not a name. It's not a term. And so the abouts collection is only when that selector, that phone number or email address, shows up uh, then, then it's collected. So it's not, it's not uh, a person's name or something. And with, I, I can't go into a lot of detail about this, but one of the reasons for that is it's technical, uh, that it, it's kind of necessary to do the upstream collection. But... Court specifically uh, found that this was uh, that this was consistent both with the statute and with the Constitution. The other point, again, I think this is probably a slip of the tongue on those part, is we cannot use an, uh, a selector associated with a U.S. person for this. Um, the, the, the way a U.S. person comes up is because the about collection, which is targeted at a foreign selector, may pick up a communication of a U.S. person. Yeah, thank you. All right, Yeah, I think that's uh, a good segue into... uh, how incidental collection actually operates. So Bob, Bob is right that there's, that at the collection stage, the government has to identify a foreign target. The selector has to be a foreign, uh, has to be a foreign selector it can be a U.S. person. Um, but the government collects uh, large volumes of Americans' communications, Americans of that, and both that, interna- mainly international but also domestic communications, uh, in the course of uh, trying to obtain the communications of those people outside the United States. And so the government amasses, in in the course of um, nominally surveilling foreign people outside the United States, the government amasses uh, these large databases of Americans' communications. And the minimization procedures are one answer to the privacy intrusion uh, that that database represents. But the minimization procedures are actually very weak. Uh, The minimization procedures, as I understand them, uh, uh, allow the government to uh, retain uh, those communications indefinitely, if they include, if they include foreign intelligence information and foreign intelligence information is defined very broadly, um, and they al- allow the government to keep everything else for up to five years. Um, and then, um, while as Bob says, and as I said earlier, at the collection stage, the selector has to be a foreign person or foreign target. Um, it, at the back end, accessing the database that the government has amassed through the through the surveillance of these people outside the United States. And at that stage, the selector can be a U.S. person. Uh, the government runs U.S. person queries in its FISA Amendments Act in its Section 702 database. And so, you know, I used the word uh, or the phrase uh, bootstrapping uh, earlier. I mean, I think this is um, you know, this is a more specific form of it. Uh, at the collection stage, the government collects on the theory that its targets are outside the United States. Uh, and at the back end, it runs queries in the database uh, without probable cause, without due. Judicial oversight on the theory that once the government has collected information, there shouldn't be any restrictions on how it how it uses it. And so the concern is that what you have is large scale access to, to U.S. persons' communications without judicial oversight, without probable cause, um, uh, and and that is something that uh, is not wouldn't be fixed by the current version of the um, the Freedom Act. But there are other proposals out there that would I think address that issue. Is
1: that, is that one?
2: Well. I mean, it's not at all unusual that uh, the government, well, let me start by saying for those of you who were here this morning, um, John Carlin made the point that one of the reasons his uh, uh, branch of the, uh, of the Justice Department exists is because of, of repeated concerns that there was a set that we were collecting information uh, under one authority that we weren't able to access for other authorities. And so what, we're, what what Jamil was talking about here is starting to re erect the kind of walls that. Uh, that hindered us uh, in in, in another one of the points of failure that led to 9-11. The other point I'd make is that it is very common for information about non-targeted U.S. persons to be collected and to be fully available for law enforcement. If you are in email communication with somebody and that person's emails are intercepted, Your information is collected and there's no restriction on the government's ability to communicate, to to collect it. Um, So this is not a novel proposition in any way. There are lots of circumstances in which you can easily see that we would want to have the ability to make U.S. person queries of the data if we have some suspicion that somebody's a terrorist, if we have some suspicion that somebody is a hostage um, or maybe a target of a a terrorism threat. Um, There still has to be some sort of valid basis for making the query, um, but, but attempting to erect particularly high barriers to this does not seem like a wise thing to do. In those circumstances, nor, nor constitutionally required in any respect, in those circumstances you just mentioned, um, um, surely a court would allow you to have access to the data. Right? It wouldn't be a wall at all that you would have access to the data. You would just have to explain to a court that there is this hostage situation. So the question is, you know, it's not whether the government should have access to data in those kinds of circumstances. It's whether the government has access to those data in only those circumstances or whether it has free access to Americans' data. Uh, just, you know, one more general one more general point is, you know, we're having this sort of weedy discussion of how the law works, and in a sense, that's a very good thing. You know, it's obviously a good thing for people to understand how the law operates and um, uh, uh, how it's been implemented. I do worry that these laws are so complicated and um, it's very easy to get distracted from the implications of the government's arguments. And I, I do think that it sometimes helps just to understand that the implication of the arguments that, that, that Bob is making now and that, that the government has been making in these cases defending Section 702. The implication is that Americans have no right of privacy in their international communications, and and the reason I say that is because the government's theories that can collect everything on the front end on the theory that you are talking to people abroad, and on the back end it can access anything on the theory that there shouldn't be any walls between there shouldn't be any walls preventing it from accessing information that's already in its hands. So that the, the implication is you have no right of privacy in your international communications. Now maybe you think that the threat is so great. Uh, that, that, that we have no choice but to give that kind of power to the government. Uh, but I, you know, I think it's, it helps to understand what's really at stake in the in the debate. So I, I actually don't think that's an accurate characterization of the argument. Um, and let me uh, go to a much more familiar and longstanding area of the law. Uh, which is it, it's well established that um, if you, if, if, if I'm having a, a communication with you and you decide to disclose that to the government, um, I, I can't block that. It's not that I have no right of privacy in that call. It's that my right of privacy is qualified in certain respects. It's qualified by the ability of that person to disclose it voluntarily. It's qualified by the government's ability to get a wiretap on that person's phone. The same thing is true here. It's not that we have no right of privacy in international phone calls. Is, because if we had no right of privacy, it would mean the government could simply uh, target your telephone calls for interception. That's not right. But your right of privacy is qualified by the uh, by the rights attendant to the person you're communicating with. So Bob,
1: the obvious question then is, how does this play out for to, from, or about collection? So that might be accurate if you're communicating to or from a target, but what if it's simply about the target in terms of a selector. How does your argument look in that context?
2: So I, I, think, I, I think that uh, in a publicly released opinion, the, the FISA court has indicated that um, it, even when FISA was, and I think this is discussed in David Chris's article uh, that is part of the materials the, 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 the here, that even when FISA was passed in 1978, it was understood that, that targeting somebody for collection didn't, didn't necessarily always mean that it was their communications that you were intercepting, that it could include that you were seeking information about them.
1: But the targeting of individuals on a traditional FISA, that individual, you have a probable cause that they're a foreign power, an agent on the foreign power, and probable cause that they're going to use the facilities to be placed under surveillance. What we're talking about in upstream collection is putting an intercept on a cable and collecting TFA. That's a very different context than what might have applied to traditional FISA.
2: Sure, it's, it's a different context, but my point is only I mean, I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I guess I'm not sure what you, what you see wrong with it um, if we are if we are collecting stuff that we're validly authorized to collect under the law. Uh, and in fact, has a legitimate foreign intelligence purpose. And we are taking appropriate steps to minimize the communication, the acquisition and retention and dissemination of communications about the United States persons.
1: Okay. Bill, any final comments on this before I
2: move to the question? Uh, to, to put some of this in different terms for a moment, mm-hmm. by now we know that the government needs to collect the haystack. They need the haystack. Uh, we learned it tragically after 9-11 that if there had been a, a haystack in a way, it appears that we would have learned through transactional material information about some of the hijackers. We assume that the haystack is required and that we get ever better at manipulating it uh, with technical means. The more uh, substantial questions go to the use of the material in the haystack. And for U.S. persons and non U.S. persons, those questions are really important. Uh, they may be thought of as Fourth Amendment questions or, or not, it seems to me, but the questions about use, I think most of us, many of us, have given up about restricting at the front end because of the expansiveness of this program. This is not, this is, I'm talking about 702. The program now that the President has been implementing for six years was authorized by Congress. Prison is exactly what 702 was about exactly. You couldn't devise a program that's any more clearly matched to the statutory grant of authority. It's not unlawful.
1: So Orrin Current's argued that forcefully against a use restriction to the Fourth Amendment. What would be your response to uh, that?
2: It's the best thing we have. It's the only realistic thing we have. We're not going to restrict on the front end.
1: Danielle, use restriction on the Fourth Amendment?
2: I, I'm not willing to give up the front end. <laughs> um you, you know, I'm not willing to give up the you've got the full here.
1: We're right. Right.
2: You, you, you know, but here are the problems are with, with, with just accepting that the government has to collect it all, right? Um, uh, um, so so one one problem is, it has nothing to do with privacy, it has to do with the First Amendment. That if The government has a record of everything that you do, everywhere that you go, every email that you send, uh, every phone call that you make, then you are going to hesitate before making certain kinds of uh, phone calls and writing certain kinds of emails, not because they're unlawful or illegitimate in some way, uh, but because they could be controversial if they were made public later on, because they might get you denied security clearance at some point in the future, uh, because the person you're writing to is somebody the government thinks of as controversial, Uh, and maybe those kinds of changes happen just at the margins of society, but over time, and over hundreds of millions of people, those kinds of changes will be significant, and they will change our society significantly, and somebody should take that into account before just saying that, you know, the government should collect it all. But the other reason is a privacy reason. You know, I don't accept that the only privacy intrusion that we should care about is the privacy intrusion that accepts uh, that, that takes place at the inquiry, at the query stage or the analysis stage. I think that the front end collection is an intrusion. And, and, and I think it's easy to understand that. Imagine that the government said, well, we're going to put a camera in every, in, in every house, in every bedroom. Uh, we're going to put a tap on your phone and we're going to record every one of your emails. We're going to copy every one of your emails. But don't worry. We're not going to look at anything. We have use restrictions. Um, uh, The the use restrictions uh, are, are very, very strong, and they will, in fact, be very, very strong do you feel that that's a privacy intrusion or not i think that the vast majority of a majority of us would understand implicitly that that is a privacy intrusion that's what the fourth amendment was meant to protect against but even the language of the fourth amendment which talks about uh, keeping people secure in their papers uh, it doesn't uh, it's very hard to reconcile that phrase with the kind of society that we would create with this haystack you know this haystack Mentality, this idea that the government should have everything just in case one day it needs it. And so this, I, before, before
1: you come, I just want to draw attention to The Ganius case in June. So we just had a Second Circuit case this past June come down where they did recognize, in essence, a use use restriction on the Fourth Amendment where you had an accountant who was servicing a company that maintained a military base uh, that they initially mirrored his computer to prosecute a company for fraud. And two years later, because they still had the computer contents, went to a judge, got a warrant, and re examined that information, and the Second Circuit said no, you cannot just keep information indefinitely and query it for a different purpose than that for which it was collected. So this idea of haystack and you can query it any time, we have the Second Circuit now weighing in on this. So
2: so just on um, that specifically, the, the, the critical fact in the Ganyus case was that the information that was seized was beyond what was authorized to be seized. Um, in other words, they had a they had a warrant that said you can seize certain information from the computer, and for convenience they seized the entire computer. And then they kept everything. So what this was what this was was what can you do with stuff that you have not been authorized by a warrant to retain, which I think is a very different question from what you can do with stuff that you have been authorized to obtain. Um, Jamil, uh, of course, has, has again gone well beyond the, the circumstances that we're talking about here. Um, I, I think that everybody would agree that, that putting a camera in everybody's bedroom uh, and, and taping that was, in fact, a violation of privacy. I think that that doesn't necessarily say that mean that this program is, in fact, a violation of privacy. The Fourth Amendment uh, uh, requires that there be an assessment of the reasonableness of the program, and that involves balancing off the government interests against the privacy interest in light of all the restrictions and the the controls put on the program. Um, I, I think there's actually a, a very important philosophical issue here. Um, we are we are faced with um, not only a, a changing threat environment, but a rapidly changing technological environment. And we're faced with situations where there clearly is a potential for abuse, and I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Um, and, but there are two ways you can deal with that. One is you can say, we're so scared of this that we're not going to allow you to do it at all. And the other is we're going to say, we're scared of this and we're going to try to put in the strongest possible restrictions we can to ensure that you don't misuse it. Um, We've adopted the second approach, uh, which in my view manages to uh, both enable us to protect national security and enable us to protect privacy. And the fact of the matter is that so far the controls have by and large worked. The programs have not operated perfectly. There have been compliance violations. But there hasn't been any indication that we've been going out and, and abusing this for political purposes or any other improper purpose. The, the Surveillance has all been, and this is, I think, the point John Carlin made this morning. This is not the church committee. This is not a surveillance state. This is not a tyranny. Um, these are, are controlled, limited, and regulated programs. And I, I think that it, it's incumbent on us going forward to ensure that we respect and maintain and honor those controls, and that that's the, the best way to achieve both security and privacy.
1: So, uh, uh, Bob was mentioning technologies and how technologies are changing. You wrote at one point the never-ending leapfrog of the technologies of detection and evasion and how those progress. So we find ourselves in a world where we have not just new technologies, but technological insecurity. So we don't know where what technologies are coming down the pipes for communications, for instance. Uh, we have new kinds of information. So we have social network analysis, which did not exist in 1979, the idea that you could subject... Uh, networks to an, uh, analytics and take a look at where the important nodes are in the networks that collect different agencies. We have geographic assumptions that are no longer true that were built into fights in 1978 that we can draw a line at the border of the United States and assume that everybody outside is non-US person, everybody inside is US person, and that actually becomes a proxy for Fourth Amendment protections. We have different privacy interests, and I know the Privacy and Civil Liberties Board is having a hearing next week looking at privacy interests and how privacy interests have changed in light of the technology. Uh, that we now find, we have this breakdown in criminal law, and national security, and this dual use. It's emerging and institutional alterations as well. So let's move to a blue skies approach before we go to Q and A. What if we didn't have FISA? We didn't have the FAA. We didn't have the USA Patriot Act. If we were to start now, thinking of the future of foreign intelligence, how would you construct the kind of framework that we would need to address these kinds of challenges as we move forward?
2: Please answer and I can't use any fish species I think that, you, you know, um, Bob said a few moments ago just how complicated the, the statute itself has become, or the larger regulatory rubric that Laura just uh, summarized. The, the, the predicate for Pfizer was uh, location. It, it was since 1978 that you know where your target is. Um, that you can identify facilities or facility that he's going to be using. Uh, we know that that is not neither of those are useful predicates any longer they haven't been for some time. But if we get a, get rid of that underlying premise for regulation, we really do have to start over. The, the FAA and 215 can't stand uh, without a foundation. I think it's very dangerous, though, to uh, start over right now, in part for the reason that uh, Laura just alluded to. I don't know if I said that about leapfrogging technology. Maybe I did. Yeah. Uh, but it's true. And I, I remember you know, to channel David Chris for a moment, we had a, a phone conference uh, a week or so ago uh, with David, and and Laura asked him about the question, and he said he would speak about, if he were here, uh, the dangers of of acting in a time of technological dynamism. Dynamism is an understatement, isn't it? It, It's happening so quickly and so unpredictably, I think. And the second, of course, uh, uh, element that David referred to is uh, the political difficulties that we in this society. Uh, so getting anything done. If, if this bill gets through the, the, the Senate and then into law in the next month and a half, uh, I'll, I'll celebrate. It would be remarkable to get something that substantive and that useful uh, through this Congress or the next Congress or, dare I say, the next Congress in this area. To start over, most of us weren't alive when, uh, or at least weren't uh, paying close attention in 1978 or the mid-70s when this remarkable compromise came along that resulted in the enactment of FISA, but it was a special time. It was post church committee, but it was still uh, a feeling the heat of those investigations. It was a remarkable at- attorney general, Edward Levy, incredible. Members of Congress in both parties on, in both the House and the Senate, a very cooperative uh, White House. Tremendous lengthy debates and discussions to arrive at some kind of a consensus about a baseline that made sense in, in a pre-digital world. Our technology was uh, still something that could be sort of truckled at. I don't know where to begin. I know that I would start from the premise that we're going to be collecting up the wazoo and worrying about use. And I know that I would put a lot of controls on those who have authority to determine use, accountability and transparency mechanisms, and you can there are all kinds of good models around from uh the you know, commissions that have been in place for 10 years or more uh, or other bills that have come along to address these issues uh, we're very good at process in our legal system and I think that the best we could do would be to unleash the collectors more or less but pay very close attention to the process uh, so um I, I completely agree with bill's comments on the uh difficulty as a political matter and trying to throw everything out and start all over again. Um, I would suggest that if we're going to blue sky we look in another direction. Um, When when people talk about technology in this context uh, they tend to talk about one of two things. One is they'll be talking about the kind of rapid technological change, change of communications, how this enables the NSA to do remarkable things in surveillance. Or they'll talk about how we can use technology to protect ourselves from surveillance, encryption, anonymization, and so on and so forth. I'd suggest that the critical way to think about technology in this context is as an enabler of privacy. Um, and we do some of that now uh, in, in, in how we operate these. For example, um, the, the 215 database is locked down. Um, you can't get at it unless you've got appropriate training, and there's auditing and monitoring of everybody who has access to this. Um, We've got some amazing technological genius in this country, and I think that it would be that that the way to try to blue sky uh, surveillance issues and the way to try to deal with these issues is, is to come up with technological solutions that can help us ensure that, in fact, the, the, the surveillance is undertaken only for an appropriate purpose, that the, that the data is not misused, and that we know everything that's being done. Uh, and I think that, that there are probably technological solutions that can be very, very helpful in that regard.
1: Okay.
2: You know, I agree with a lot that's, that's been said. I mean, I do think it's naive to think that the government um, can actually protect all of this information. And, and you know, I think the Snowden episode uh, itself, whatever you think of the Snowden disclosures, I mean, if, if they prove anything, it's that the government uh, sometimes can't protect even its most closely held secrets. Um, and I think that you, know, you have to take that into account when you allow the government to create these kinds of databases. But the other point I'd make, I'm, I made, I I'm not sure how you would start from scratch. Either you know, um, I I do think again, uh, you know, borrowing Bill's phrase, uh, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not willing to accept that the government that we should we should allow the government to collect up the wazoo, I think was your phrase, uh, you know, the, the, the term the of art. art, is, art. Is, right, right. I think it's a good description of what's going on. Um, but, uh, <laughs> is one respect in which I do think that we should um, uh, we, we should make a fairly significant change. I do think that uh, there's very little evidence uh, any, that these um, bulk collection programs have been effective. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the President himself has now said that the 215 program, for example, the call records program, uh, isn't any more effective than a more targeted program would be. And I think that, you know, given that there is little or no evidence that the programs are effective, it seems it's completely crazy to me that we are pouring all these resources into these massive collection programs, rather than pouring those resources into individualized, targeted surveillance, which you know shows its effectiveness on a daily basis. Um, and, and you know, if I were rewriting uh, uh, the statutes, and Bob, let me know if you want some help drafting. Um, you know, if I were rewriting the statutes, I would probably start by uh, restoring some form of individualized suspicion requirement um, to to section 250. Uh, and to the 5-7 exam section 702 7,
1: 7, alright thank you so with that we'll go ahead and open it we've got about 20 minutes for questions uh, if you'd like to begin so if you could please just identify who you are my name is uh, Danielle Rober, and until 8 days from now I guess I'm representing myself because I'm going to be starting the new job uh, recognize that whether or not the government collects the haystack, there's a lot of data collected by private entities. Now I personally may or may not like that fact Facebook, um, but there is a lot of data that's collected. I'm wondering if there's a lesson to be learned or an opportunity from a program I know about from my prior, previous employer uh, not one I regularly dealt with so I'm hopefully not going to put through the, the salient details, but the minor corporation collects uh, aviation, commercial aviation data for, I believe it's the flight of uh, uh, Flight Operational Quality assurance Program, folk And the, it's a private entity, MITRE, and the FAA taps that data, I believe de-identified, but taps that data uh, to look at trends. To do kind of the searching that you're talking about uh, without, I should say, criminal implications. Uh, but what... Would there be in value of maybe having the third party collect the haystack and the government then getting the protections, uh, going through the process of the protections to access the third party data?
2: We actually um, looked quite closely at that option uh, when we were talking about what we want to do to replace the 215 program. Uh, And it was um, was rejected for a number of different reasons. Number one is who's the third party going to be? Um, number two uh, cost factors number three security factors you're creating another target out there and number four you um Uh, Once somebody's uh, collecting and holding all that data and it's a private party, how do you stop every divorce lawyer in the country from going to them with a subpoena? Um, And so, for all these reasons, I I think there was a a pretty unanimous consensus um, with the executive branch of the Congress and I think the privacy advocates as well that this is not a a better solution. Okay,
1: Okay. next question. Uh, Charlie. Sorry, General General Dunlap.
2: We've been talking a lot about privacy concerns. How much do we think the American people really care about privacy? And the reason I raised the question is that there was a few research polls that came out in September that said uh, only 35% of the people thought that the government was going too far in restricting civil liberties in addressing terrorism. And in fact, 50% said the government wasn't going far enough. So I'm wondering if, uh, if does that matter? And what's the reaction of your uh, panel? Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. I've seen wildly different polls on on that set of questions. And obviously, with all these polls, everything turns on how the question is asked. Um, You you know, I think that we see people care uh, sort of every day about privacy, even with respect to to private companies, right? You see people uh, now. Uh, Being much more willing to exercise their privacy rights with respect to Facebook, to use the privacy controls on Facebook, you see the companies like Google and Twitter and Apple uh, doing things like filing motions in the FISA court, which are in part intended to convey to their subscribers that they are protecting their privacy. So I think that there, you know, I think that people care about privacy. Uh, I think what they maybe care most about um, is control over their information. So you know, obviously, people make a lot of information public or entrusted to third parties knowingly and willingly. Uh, but I, I don't think it's fair to say that um, the fact that sometimes people entrust information to third parties or make it public means that they're comfortable making all of their information public or available to the government. So I think I have a- exactly the same authority to talk about the, the attitude of the American population to privacy as, as, as Jamil does. Um, I, I agree with a lot of what he says. I don't think we can draw the conclusion that people don't care about privacy. I think they, they, they can do care about privacy, but I think some of the polls that you're talking about reflect that people understand that there can be restrictions that are imposed on it, uh, on privacy if they're appropriate and reasonable. Um, and I, th- I think that the, the discussion really is, I don't think anybody suggests that we don't take privacy into, cal- into account. I don't think anybody suggests that we don't take security into account. I think what, where the discussion is is how far can you go to accomplish both of them and what are the appropriate means of doing that and I think that, that's probably where the American people are.
1: One other uh, way to respond to that might be, that, you know, the Bill of Rights is not subject to a majoritarian decision. Right? The whole point was to protect minority rights in the face of the majority, going back to the anti-federalist versus federalist debate. So so to look to a Pew poll as a way to gauge what rights of the minority should, should be forced to give up, I think, is really the wrong way around, at least as a constitutional matter.
2: Yeah, I, and I totally agree with that. If, if I could just re-attack on one point, why is it that the public perceives that the government isn't going far enough? especially with all the disclosures and so forth that, that we have. I mean, I completely agree with you, Laura, there's lots, and, and Jamil, in fact, the whole the whole panel, there's lots of things about privacy that, that we want to have. I do think there's a distinction between what the public thinks about private companies and so forth having uh, privacy. But in relation to doing something about terrorism, why is it with all these disclosures that 50% of the public, and if Pew Research is not, you know, a crazy data collection entity, I, I would not suggest, why is it that, that people think that the government isn't going far enough? That's what puzzles me, frankly. You're seeing it in this setting to look across the water to see what's happening in this area in the uh, European continent, and in particular their reactions to the the Snowden revelations and to their own nation's uh, involvement in some of these same activities. Countries as, uh, as different legally as the UK, with an unwritten constitution, and some of the others in Western Europe who have far different legal traditions on their own, now, privacy is valued differently, it would seem there. But there's been a, a great outcry, not only at what was revealed about NSA involvement there, but about some of their own domestic activities. You may have seen in the last couple of weeks a report. By the special rapporteur of the UN for human rights, Ben Emerson, who, who opined that under the ICCPR, the covenant of which the United the treaty of which the United States is a is party, uh, there is a respect uh, a respect for privacy in Article 17. It just it's not well defined. It talks about the right of privacy without further elaboration, uh, and he he maintained after study uh, that the uh, activities of uh, widespread uh, bulk collection and widespread uh, content collection uh, violate Article 17. There are litigation going on in domestic courts now in four or five European countries and in the European Court of Human Rights uh, alleging complicity between Government A and the United States or simple violations by the domestic uh, government of that uh, provision of the Covenant. Okay,
1: other questions, Uh, Chris, Christopher.
2: Question. Hi, my name is Christopher Segoyan. I'm the principal technologist for the ACLU. Uh, Jamil didn't see this question. Um, so last week, uh, about, about a week and a half ago, I was re- researching some stuff and I came across an old document, an FOIA uh, document set, revealing that the FBI, uh, in its efforts to deliver malware to a 17-year-old teenager in Seattle, had impersonated the Associated Press. This led to uh, stories around the country and led to Senator Leahy sending a letter to the attorney. General on Friday, it led to a very, very angry letter from the General Counsel of the Associated Press. Now the FBI isn't the only U.S. law enforcement or intelligence agency in the business of delivering malware. The NSA has its own tailored actors operations unit. The CIA and JSOC also have their own uh, units that deliver malware to targets. And so, to so Bob, my question is: What rules, internal uh, or otherwise, limit the uh, limit the act of impersonating the, the news media uh, in the effort or in, in aid of delivering malware to targets? And do the rules? Uh, Do the rules differ between impersonating U.S. news media organizations or foreign news media organizations? Thank you. So, Um, great question, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) A grouper. (laughs) Um, uh, I I guess I'm not, I I don't feel comfortable answering that. Not not because of sensitivities, but because I'm just not... Uh, able to spout out the rules i know that there are there are rules in executive order 12 triple three about what we can do uh, i know that the, the, that the individual agencies have rules to the extent to which they can um, uh, deal with us person stuff I, I don't have the conversance with them and, or frankly the knowledge of where the lines are between what's classified and what's not classified to feel comfortable answering the question i'm not i'm not criticizing you for answering asking the question i, I just i don't think i can answer it
1: so actually bob can i redirect that? And to a question you might be able to answer, which is uh, similar to it in some ways. Uh, LinkedIn, for instance, some of the information that's been, linked, there's, that's been leaked, right, has shown that it's possible that some of the intelligence agencies have imitated U.S. companies uh, in their surveillance efforts. And this has been widely circulated in European countries. We know that the cloud computing industry, it's, it's estimated up to $140 billion hit over the next three years to cloud computing. Uh, and when you think about economic security as central to now, National security, as it has been from the founding. If you read the founding documents, economic security was central to it. Uh, What efforts have there been, and do you think it's sufficient, the degree to which US industry, commercial interests, and economic national security has been built into the intelligence infrastructure at a meaningful level, so that at a programmatic level there is thought given to what the impact might be of certain decisions on the US economy uh, when national security steps are taken?
2: So, um, I think that's one of the things that DPD 28 talks about, is is taking those kinds of considerations into account. Um, I do think, I think Raj may have said this this morning, that um, somebody who decides um, they're not going to uh, use uh, an American product, but they're going to use a um, Bulgarian or Russian product because they're because they think it'll be more secure um, is probably not making a wise choice. And I think we still I still think we have uh, both the best products and the most secure products and the most secure legal structure of any country in the world. But I do think that, that it that it's a relevant consideration to take into account what are the, what are the possible impacts of what we're doing and of potential disclosure of what we're doing. And I think that's something that's, that's happening. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, more questions. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Sorry, could you wait for the microphone just so we could hear you? Thank you. Hi, my name is Maura Quinn, and um, I'm at the DEA. so I come with a, a little bit different perspective, a law enforcement perspective, and we come up against and have been coming up against a lot of the technological problems that have been discussed here today. And uh, Director Comey recently came out and talked about Apple and Google's decision in the, make, the next generation of their operating systems to make sure that their cell phones or smartphones are locked down, and even with a, a court order, we can't, as law enforcement, get access to evidence of crimes. And we're having the same problem on electronic surveillance. I hear ACLU over here saying, hey, it'd be great if um, we could be transparent. And I hear ACLU up here on the, on the stage saying, yes, we think we would support a targeted solution. So my question is, do you think that there could be consensus to make sure that law enforcement and intelligence community pursuant to valid orders are able to get access uh, to evidence of crimes and to threat to uh, our natural security.
2: But well, yet there's certainly consensus that um, you already have the ability to go to a court and get a probable cause order uh, and sometimes, with those probable cause orders, you break into facilities that people are trying to protect against you. I mean, that was the, true in the you know, pre-digital world, where you got probable cause orders justified breaking down somebody's door. Now, that said, I don't believe that um, uh, the government necessarily should have access to everything, and I think that the government's, uh, that the Director Comey's um, um, the, the speeches over the last couple weeks have been have been misguided. I, you know, it's never been. In the case that the government, that the fact that the government might need something uh, has been a justification for rendering the communication or rendering uh, that particular thing insecure. You know, we, we delete emails all the time, right? And nobody has ever proposed that we shouldn't be allowed to delete emails because one day the government might need those emails and might be able to prove to a court that it needs those emails. There are limits to what the government is going to have access to, and that's not a bad thing. That's what it means to live under a limited government. It means that, in some circumstances, the government is going to justifiably want information that it can't get. But that is just a, that's just a function of living in uh, a society in which the government has less than total control. I okay. question now. Uh, yes, Elliot oh, Schircourt. Okay. Sure. Uh, this uh, question is directed to the, the gentleman from the ACLU. Uh, it's my understanding the ACLU has filed a case challenging the government's collection of telephony metadata. But we've talked a lot today about the collection of content in emails.
1: Why is it the ACLU has not filed a case challenging or seeking
2: an injunction against the government's collection of email content? Um, to what we we have? Um, we, we we actually filed a case um, 45 minutes after the after Section 702 was signed into law by President Bush. We filed a case. It was called Amnesty versus. Eventually, got called Amnesty versus Clapper. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court, but it was it, it was thrown out by the Supreme Court five to four just a few months before the Snowden revelations began, and it was thrown out not on the merits but on uh, on standing. The court's theory, or the theory of five justices of the Supreme Court, was that uh, our who are human rights organizations and media, organized, media organizations uh, couldn't show that they had a right to be in court because they couldn't prove that their own communications had been monitored. Now, at that time, you know, nobody could prove that their own communications had been monitored, so the effect of the decision was to insulate the law from scrutiny. Um, you know, one, one sort of... Um, very frustrating thing about that case was that one of the arguments that the government used to convince the courts to throw the case out on standing uh, was that uh, that it was providing notice to criminal defendants uh, who had been surveilled, who were being prosecuted on the basis of evidence derived from Section 702. And In fact, it turned out that the government wasn't providing the notice that it told the Supreme Court it was providing. Uh, Now the government is providing that notice, at least in some cases, and criminal defendants are challenging the constitutionality of Section 702, uh, which is one of the provisions that allows the collection of email, uh, uh, challenging the constitutionality of that statute in the context of motions to suppress. And so we may now see over the next uh, year or so some decisions coming out of the district courts and eventually the appeals courts on the constitutionality of the statute. Yeah, there already has been one uh, upholding
1: it. Yes, yes. there are only three, though, that 702 evidence has been claimed.
2: That's That's right. right. Yeah. All right.
1: um, And I think we only have time for a couple more questions, so I'm going to take these in a group and then give everybody an opportunity to either answer or give a
2: final statement. So we'll do it that way. I'm David Charney. I'm a psychiatrist, and my specialization is the psychology of the insider spy. But in my regular work, I do my regular practice. One of my things that I treat is panic disorder. Somebody has one panic attack, and they're rattled. If they don't get another one, Two or three weeks later, they're cool. But if they get a second panic attack, that's all they're thinking about. Now let's jump over to the good and the bad about 9 11. The bad is that 9 11 happened, the good is that it only happened once. One of the terms that was applied to this group is adaptation. I think that's relevant here, because we're living in a context where the scale of this assault on us occurred a decade ago, and that sets the, the the culture, the feeling. How would you feel if we had a second or a third 9-11? How would all of what you say shift and adapt to take into account that sort of a difference?
1: Thank you. All right, here. 30 seconds.
2: This is more of a technical question after the think question we just got, and this is a question mainly to Bob. Uh, we know through the 702 program, occasionally because of the way the internet works, we can get communications between two U.S. persons. So can you tell us what you do to make sure that the contents of those communications are safeguarded?
1: Okay, great, so on the table we have a second attack and uh, domestic uh, communications potentially are USP to USP. Uh, Final remarks, Uh, why don't we start with you, Bob?
2: So uh, first to deal with uh, Peter's question and then to make a final remark. Um, The minimization procedures. first of all, there are a lot of technical filters to try to prevent that from happening. Um, I think Judge Bates' opinion recognizes that it does happen on occasion and the minimization procedures provide essentially that on recognition they have to be destroyed. Um, so um, I-, I think that's, that's something that's been accounted for. Um, I guess in terms of a final statement, i I, I just note that um, the um, Section 215 relates to the collection of tangible things. Um, the uh, intelligence community is watching the Supreme Court case that uh, Rich Gross talked about with great interest because uh, if, if they've determined that, in fact, groupers are not a tangible thing, it will really decimate the FBI's grouper collection. <laughs> All right, you know. Um, um, You know, I guess I'll just say the the obvious about the think question, which is that, you know, everybody takes the threat seriously. Um, It's... uh it's a, it's a real threat, it's not the only threat, and we have to respond in a way that's proportioned to the threat and that actually addresses the threat. And I think a lot of the conversation now is about whether these programs really are tailored to the threat in that way. Um, and I think everybody's approaching that, that discussion, um, you know, with the same ends in mind and the same sort of general motivations, although obviously we have very different answers to some of the questions. Okay. Uh, I agree with what Jamil said. I I think one of the lessons of this uh, subject area, of course, is its complexity, and I think uh, I've been trying to understand Pfizer for 25 years, and I don't get it yet, and I work at it very hard. I think all of you have the same responsibility as we do to educate the public about this area of our society, what the rules are and why they're in place, uh, making them understandable. It's not an easy thing to do, but you can do it. Uh, and if, if you try to explain this to your uh, to your mother or your daughter or your sister-in-law, uh, practice for a while, and, and maybe you'll catch on.
1: As I noted at the beginning, I could think of no better panel to put together to discuss the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act uh, than this panel, and I hope you will join me in thanking them for their thoughts
0: the lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the brookings institution help 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 spread the word about the podcast leave reviews on itunes tweet the lawfare podcast facebook share it take a selfie of yourself on instagram listening to it Our music, as always, is performed by Sophia Yan, who impatiently says of people who think the PRISM program is illegal, Thanks for listening.
1: Got a new puppy or want to spoil the ones you already love? Shop online at Chewy. Find food, beds, prescriptions,
0: and more. We've got everything you need to make them happy. Plus, you get fast, free shipping on orders over $49. Visit Chewy.com today.